let's talk about reason and religion. In our modern world, these two things are often presented to us as if they are fundamentally opposed to one another, but they're really not. We're going to be picking up on our conversation where we study G.K. Chesterton and kind of compare some of the theologies and philosophies that he had from 100 years ago to where we're at in the world today. So I'm Pastor J. Dillon Proctor, and there is one other here with me in the studio. Hello, I'm John Mills. Glad to be with you. And uh, Pastor John, would you pray for us as we begin? Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day that you've given us. We thank you for the opportunity to discuss these issues, and we ask that your spirit would be here and that you would give wisdom and anointing in your name. Amen. Amen. So let's jump right in. We're reading G.K. Chesterton's Orthodoxy, and the first quote that I want to share with you, and I'll let John respond to this, reads as follows. It says, Insofar as religion is gone, reason is gone, if not going. And what he means by this is when a culture starts to reject religion, then reason is going out the door as well. And he elaborates this a little bit. He says, for they both, reason and religion, they are the same primary and authoritative kind. They are both methods of proof that cannot be themselves proved. In the act of destroying divine authority, societies have largely destroyed the idea that human ideas can do anything, that we can do long subdivision. So what are your thoughts on this, John? This whole idea that when a culture decides to reject divine authority, they're also going to ultimately destroy all the tools which we have to prove and disprove anything. And he uses the language there of arithmetic, saying you can't even do long math. Um, You can either prove or disprove whether math is good. If you have given up faith that there's even any objective reality, you're just kind of in the road of chaos. What are your thoughts on this? Well, I, I can see where he's going with this. You know, the idea that both religion and, and rationality or reasoning uh, are based on certain assumptions that we make. And if you're going to go with this idea that nothing is true and nothing can be proven, then not only do you throw out the religious aspect, but you also throw out uh, rationality itself and rational thinking. And as he pointed out using uh, the example of math, but all of the thinking, you know, that that deals with reason. And so you're left really with nothing. I know you mentioned in your Sunday school lesson this week that the biggest problem we have is not political. It's not the coronavirus, though there's this huge temptation to believe that it is. It's not anything to do with race, but it really is a spiritual problem. There is a God-shaped hole in our world and, ju- and you can kind of see the decay in society. We live about 100 years after G.K. Chesterton. In our structure, which I'm going to include kind of all of Western civilization, not just America, there was this mentality that says separation of church and state, separation of church and state, which was totally dislocated from the original intent instead of this idea that individuals would work out their faith personally in fear and trembling and then those individuals who were a devoutly religious people would hold their governments accountable, whether it be local or federal. Kind of the shift has happened where you can't even allow God in the public sphere at all. You know, if you want to deal with a particular crime, you can't say, well, you know, it's sinful to to take life from another. Instead, you kind of have to go through the legal avenue. It's kind of cut itself off from God. And you see how once we did that, once we tried to destroy divine authority, it really did open up the door for chaos 
everywhere. Um, any thoughts on that and how this really is a pathological progression that we see happening in our world? Well, yeah, I, th- I think you've, you've uh, made some good points there. You know, when we cut ourselves off from God, when we cut ourselves off from God's authority, and, and basing what we do on whether God has told us that it's right or wrong, you know, then we're left with, with nothing really to go on. And it, it does. It creates all of these problems and all of these issues of relating with one another and how the different parts of our society are going to relate together. And, and you know, we have nothing higher than ourselves. And when we don't have anything higher than ourselves to aspire to, to look to, we wind up in trouble. And Sunday I talked about Goblin Town in my sermon and how there was this siren song of Goblin Town where our world, and I used it as an illustration, obviously there's not a, a real Goblin Town, but there also kind of is. Um, mm. I, I used this illustration where our world, it, it was offended by the calling of God to turn from sin. This idea that we should have some accountability higher than ourselves. And it listened to this voice from the cave that said, ah, come in here. We're all equal. You're not going to be criticized for your sin, for your ugliness, for anything to do with your character. If you'll come down here in the dark with this, everybody will be equal. Um, And the truth is, in the darkness, kind of everyone is. But it's a totally miserable place. You mentioned there how when you take away divine authority, which you can sell to people, and Chesterton writes about this, you know, people, they took the Christian notion of charity and said, well, we don't want to make people feel guilty about their sin, so we'll just tell them there's no sin, no need for forgiveness. But you also take away people's hope. You take away people's aspiration to something better when you do that. You you really do leave people in the darkness. There's there's no sense of accomplishment. There's no meaning. There's no purpose. There's no beauty. There's no good. You're just there left in the darkness with nothing. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I you know, when you when you when you stop looking to God for what, you know, what is good and what is beautiful and what is pure and all of these things, you're reducing everything else to its lowest common denominator that everybody can agree to. Yeah. And it yeah, it does. It it leaves us it leaves us with problems. Proverbs 1:7 reads that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And, and I like how this reads in the Septuagint, which is the Greek Old Testament, because it actually sounds a little bit like um, John 1 or Genesis 1, where you've got kind of an NRK statement there in the beginning. Um, it's it's just the, the language and syntax is worked around a little bit where it's kind of like in the beginning of knowledge, you have the fear of the Lord. It's just kind of interesting how it's sh- um, structured there. But this idea of divine accountability, understanding that you really are a sinner in need of something greater than you, that is the beginning of knowledge. That is the beginning of understanding. It's the beginning of reason. Again, God is a God of reason and order. And John, what would your your thoughts be on how we re- really do need to assert Proverbs 1-7, because there's a lot of hope in Proverbs 1-7. It's a very beautiful statement. It's not something which is meant to be depressing. It's meant to be something which is a guiding light to show people how they can find the truth. Yeah, that that is certainly true. You know, the fear of the Lord is the beginning uh, of wisdom. So, as you're saying, it is a very positive statement. You know, it, it points us in the direction. It, it gives us a map of where we need to be going. 
you know, without it, you think of all the times in the in the Old Testament where it talked about people doing what was right in their own eyes and and uh, you know leaving it up to their own minds to think of of what they should be doing. And you see all of the trouble that they find themselves in, that they get themselves into. So to me, the idea that you know that God points us in a direction and says this is the way you should be going, it's not. It's not bad news. It's incredibly good news, you know. And the same thing, you know, with the, the various laws of God. We have a God who's concerned enough about us to tell us what to do and what not to do. And, you know, when we, when we start this idea, well, we shouldn't tell anybody else what to do or what not to do or anything like that, we're doing them a tremendous disservice yeah. by, by not giving them true wisdom. Yeah, and this is something I, I said Sunday in, in the whole sermon was our world receded into the caves wanting to find a safe space where it never had to tell anyone something they didn't want to hear. And, but what you find is you're ultimately, it, it's a regression. It's not a, a positive movement. You're regressing to something less if you take that stance that says, I don't want to hold anyone accountable. I don't want to even hold someone to standards where they can grow. It really is very sad. Another Chesterton quote I want us to talk about is really how we relate to standards in general. Chesterton says, We live in a false theory of progress, which maintains that we alter the test instead of giving a try to pass the test. And really, when you look at somewhere like Nehemiah, you can use the walls as an example. Nehemiah, he's ashamed that the walls are crumbling. And the people of God had failed to maintain the high expectations that were set before them. But people today, rather than being ashamed that, you know, the, the walls have crumbled and trying to pass the test of building the walls, building Jerusalem, having the festivals and so forth and so on. They just kind of want to throw away the test altogether. They want to put on sackcloth and be ashamed of ever having a wall putting on sackcloth and being ashamed of ever having a festival of ever doing great things. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, well, I, you know, as you as you look at the idea of, of Nehemiah and what he accomplished there in reminding the people of, of the possibility of a wall, you know, they like you said, they they had taken away the entire uh, notion of what God wanted them to do. And they had no concept of, of the idea that the wall was possible, that the wall should be there. You know, these were people who had lived their entire lives without a wall. And so to them, it was just kind of the normal. And I think of our society today, and, you know, we have no concept of what God wants from us because we've gotten away from it for so long that it just seems normal to, to put our own wisdom and our put our own ideas up there for what God really wants for us. One of the things I just was talking with someone online about was, we look in our culture, and it seems time and time again, pretty much everything that happens, whether it be a, a political move, movies that come out, shifts in music, everything seems to be moving away from holiness. And even when we look within our own Christian institutions, when we, we look within things which seem to be interested in the holy aspirations of God, there seems to be this slouch away from the things of holiness rather than a a actual affirmative case on why we should be holy. 
um, instead of using the the words, the language of Scripture, we a lot of times want to argue things and assert them from the premise of where our world's at, which, again, that's never going to get you very far. But as you said there, Nehemiah opened the eyes to people that they could have a wall. And again, the wall is a symbol for so much more. It's not just about having a nice wall outside a city. It is the symbol that comes with it. It's what goes with being the people of God. John, how can we, do you even know, I know this is like a, a big question that we're all asking. What what can we do in the church to get people to set their eyes back on the holy aspirations of God and to move away from just arguing with the world on the world's terms, but get back to arguing um, the case for holiness, showing people the beauty of the gospel, showing people the truth. You know, God didn't create us in his image to be pitiful. His image is not a pitiful sight. God created us to be his people. And just as he is holy, we ourselves should be holy. Yeah, you know, we get back to this idea of Nehemiah, of Nehemiah casting a vision. You know, that was what was lacking for the people living there in Jerusalem, those living in the ruins of this wall. It wasn't that they lacked resources. It wasn't that they lacked ability. You know, they had what it took because you can see they completed the wall within just a matter of 50-something days. So they had everything that they needed, but they lacked the vision. And Nehemiah was the one who came before them and showed them this vision of what was possible. And so, you know, that has to be our job as the church to, to repeatedly cast this vision out before those around us to say, this is what could be. This is what should be. You know, we've gotten so used to living in a world without God and to living in a world where we're, we're trying to make God irrelevant. And so even in the church, sometimes we begin to kind of accept that we want to kind of split our life apart into sections and say, well, you know, this is government and this is business and this is church and God belongs in church, but he doesn't belong in government and he yeah. doesn't belong in business and he doesn't really belong in entertainment or any of these other things. Where, as you were talking about, the idea of holiness is God belongs in all of those yes, areas. Absolutely. And so we just, you know, we have to cast that vision before the people. Well, and I think the reason we have to cast that vision is because it's pretty clear that it's lost. That no. my generation, which I, I can't really speak for yours, but for my generation, they have been fully trained, weaned on this idea that God only belongs in this small box. And even people who who claim to be in the church in this mentality, you know, you can't talk about that subject. You can't look about those. And I'm not saying like people have been told, like, don't go to the pornography shop and look at that. But just this whole idea that you can't talk about really even Hollywood, the whole idea of actually having a major production studio that is interested in doing Christian things, not just you know, a small student, but this whole idea that reach for the heavens, go out and positively affirm the faith, do the great works of God. Um, We have been trained that all this stuff is off limits. And you kind of alluded to this last week. You know, if everything is to be tolerated, then evil will be tolerated. And you're going to have a culture that naturally goes towards evil because the children of light will be restrained by the learning that says, well, we can't talk um, politics, which again, we're not supposed to be shields for politics and never... The church should never do that. But we also shouldn't pretend that the forces in our world don't have any moral effect on us. Like there's, there is an accountability that says the church should be a prophetic voice pulling people away from sin and towards God. But so many times in our world, 
the children of light have been trained, well, you stay in your box. And as we know from Daniel chapter 6, um, those who are, who are wicked, they don't play by the rules. They'll, they'll trick no. King Darius. They'll do whatever they want. Um, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I understand what you're saying. You know, we've gotten so afraid to tell people that we have a better way. Yes. Because, you know, we've gotten convinced that when we say we have a better way, somehow that makes us self-righteous. Yeah. Well, we're not saying we have a better yeah. way because of my own ability or my own intellect or whatever. I didn't figure out a better way. We have a better way because God has revealed it to us. Yeah. And because this is God's way and that makes it the better way. But we've gotten so uncomfortable with saying we have a better way of doing things and telling people you should be doing them this way. Yeah. You know, we kind of have the idea, well, this this works for me and maybe it'll work for you. And if it does work for you, well, that's great. And if not, but the whole idea is, no, God has told us exactly what works for everybody. And this will work for you if you'll do it. But we don't want to make that claim. Yeah. And there's so much I want to build off there. And before I do that, I want to share a line from this Sunday sermon. One of the lines I've gotten, we're going to be in Nehemiah 1 myself. Um, People of the past put on sackcloth because they were ashamed of failing God's great aspiration for them. But people of today like to sing songs of lamentation because they don't want to offend God by having aspirations. As if having aspirations, having that vision, having that alternative to the world would be the prideful sin of thinking too highly of ourselves. But the truth is, God did not create us in his image to be pitiful, for his image is not a pitiful sight. Um, you were mentioning there how we have been comfortable not casting the vision of what is the true alternative to the world. That is absolutely where, and I think that's one of the the methodologies in which the forces of evil, which a lot of people don't even believe in the devil my age, but the, the conscious forces of evil which I do believe in the devil, for the record. If anybody's curious, I, I do. Um, the devil and his demons have used a atmosphere where the righteous people would not cast their alternative to the world, which is the only aspirational one. O- only God can elevate people. And for a lot of people my age, and it just shocks me, I see this online, I, I hear this with conversations of people that I went to school with, socialism has been the alternative given to people. And this idea, and you find it in their ways, they want to lower everybody down to the lowest common denominator to have some sort of equalized society rather than aspiration, which requires God. You know, the world can actually lower everybody down. Nebuchadnezzar can flatten everybody out, um, but only God can build people up. Um, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, but that's definitely something I've seen where the children of light, the church, the gospel-driven people have not either been trained, they've been brainwashed into thinking, you can't show the people that are lost the real vision. You can't give them the hope that they need. And it's so sad. It really is like an oppressive demon that comes to take advantage of God's children. You know, God, even the people who are uh, have bought into all this stuff, you know, that's not how God wanted them to live. We have to love them and see past the doctrines and ideas which have infected them. What are your just general thoughts on that? I know I just dumped a lot of stuff <laughs> out there, a lot to talk about, but I'll let you just respond. Okay. Well, I, yeah, I, I think what you're saying is, is certainly true. You know, we've lost this idea that we have a right to tell people, you know, we know what you should be doing because we have the idea that this makes us, you know, uh, self-righteous and all of this. 
we we think you know that we we don't have the capability of doing that it's interesting you know when i think about paul and paul made some pretty bold statements and basically in a couple of places he says if you want to know what christ would do look at me and do what i did because if you'll do what i did you'll do what Christ did because I'm doing what Christ did. And as the church, we have that capability to say to our world, if you want to know what's best, then listen to us because we have what is best, not from ourselves, but from God. But we do have it. And so when we don't give out that message, then it's not, we're not doing the, the world any favors by allowing them to continue on in their same old messed up condition. One final thought that I'd like to share before we wrap this conversation up. You mentioned there something about Paul which piqued a angle in my mind. You know, you open up your Bibles, you're probably going to find some maps in the end of Jerusalem in the time of Jesus. And one of the maps that you commonly find is Paul's missionary journeys. We have been sold a lie in our modern day and age that if you want to change the world, it needs to be from a top-down solution. We have maps in our Bibles about Paul's missionary journeys, we don't have papers in our Bible about some policy of Constantine or um, a a top-down policy from a high priest or anything like that. And the reason is, is because the biblical model of effective revival doesn't come from a top-down policy. It doesn't come from, you got the right politician in there, you got the right legislators to write the right law, and you got the right judges. No. It's not about judges or anything like that. The biblical model for revival says you have men and women who God didn't tell them to have perfect knowledge. He didn't tell them to have all the knowledge of the the universe, but men and women who stepped up and said, well, I'm going to do what God has given me. In the case of Paul, Paul, he's he's living Christ-like. He's, he's following that model. Again, he's not the judge of the living and the dead with that perfect justice, but he is modeling Christian living as it has been given to him. And we, we study his missionary journeys. We learn about them because revival spread from that. And the same with, with the other apostles that you find there. And even in Nehemiah, you have that same force of revival where Nehemiah, he's just a guy who's a cupbearer. He's never probably done any masonry work, probably never used a sword much. But he's inspiring other people. He brings that vision and that revival happens. Your, your thoughts on that, on how we've been sold the line that we have to rely on top-down changes and not the person-to-person revival that really Scripture models for us. Yeah, I, you know, you're right. We, especially, I don't know, maybe as Americans, we like the idea, you know, a bigger is better. And, and, and the idea, right, that you, you start with one huge person at the top, and they're the ones that get everything done. But, no, the, the model uh, of, of uh, biblical well, of how the church works. You know, I think of Jesus talking about how the kingdom of God is like a little bit of yeast. And you put it into the dough, and it's not very much yeast at all, but it begins to work its way through the dough and to percolate. And so, you know, you start out with something very small that grows and grows and grows. And so we see from that, you know, the, the biblical model of, of how God wants his kingdom to operate. Yep. And that's where we're going to wrap up. I thank you all for being here. And Pastor John, would you close us out in prayer as we wrap up our conversation today? Yes, let's pray. Dear Lord, we do thank you for 
the wisdom that you have given us. It's not our wisdom. It's not something we came up with. This is you revealing yourself to us through your word. And so we don't put out these things as a claim for ourselves. We put them out as a claim for you and as a claim of biblical truth. And we thank you that we have access to that. And we just ask that you would bless your word, that your spirit would work and move through us and among us in your name. Amen.